If I could ask you to take your Bibles again and open to that passage that uh, we've just read together, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you're wondering uh, that a week happened that you missed because we have skipped the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 18 to 29. No, you didn't miss it. Uh, It's coming next week. Um, In God's providence, CUNA came a couple weeks early, and so our preaching schedule was uh, needed to be slightly rearranged. And so Shane had prepared the church in Thyatira for for this week, and I'd prepared the church in Sardis for next week. Um, But uh, with CUNA arriving a bit early, we we swapped Sunday. So uh, next week when you come back, uh, we will return to the church in Thyatira. But this morning we're coming to look at the church in Sardis, and so please keep that passage open before you. And uh, just a particular word uh, to those who've perhaps tuned in online this morning. We're grateful to the Lord for the ability to stream our service live. Uh, The purpose and intention is for those who cannot be here at church. And so just an encouragement pastorally, uh, whether you're listening as a as someone who is a regular member of Honey Ridge, um, if you do not need to be at home, can I encourage you to, to join us again as soon as you can back at church? And perhaps if you are tuning in from somewhere else around the world, please do not ever let uh, this Honey Ridge live stream or any other service for that matter be a replacement for belonging to your local body. Uh, God has called us to belong uh, as his people to the church, uh, and that means in person. Um, and so while we are grateful for this technology and its use over this time of COVID, um, may it never be a replacement for belonging to the body of Christ and participating as we've done this morning in our worship of God, our corporate praying, uh, and our coming now under the preaching of the word. Well, as I start this morning, let me ask you a question. Don't you just hate it when someone you thought that you knew, uh, someone you thought that you could trust, uh, perhaps a friend or a, a business colleague, uh, they turn out to be a fraud. The friendship was fake. The relationship was actually a, a cover-up for selfish motives and, and hidden agendas And the partnership proved to be one-sided, and in the end, you were stabbed in the back. Well, we would call that person a hypocrite, a phony, a charlatan, because they deceived us by pretending to be something or someone that they were not. As you perhaps, I'm sure, can resonate with what that feels like to have been on the receiving end of hypocrisy, we come today to consider the church in Sardis, Uh, a church which Jesus exposes as being filled with spiritual hypocrites, spiritual frauds, a, a church about to die if they do not remedy their situation very, very quickly. So what I want to do just quickly is to just recap the ground that we've covered to set the scene. Dion, I forgot the little clicker. Can someone just run to the front and, and bring me the, uh, the little clicker if you don't mind? But let's just recap on, on the ground that we've, we've covered um, over the, the, the churches so far by quickly just uh, revisiting our, our bucket um, pulley illustration for, for each of the churches. Thanks, Graham. <clears throat> 
So, so let's start with uh, the, the church in Ephesus. Just a quick recap on the picture. I'm not going to go into it. They were the church who had lost their first love. So you can see the bucket of the heart is, is empty. Uh, the bucket of the mind was full, and, and Christ commended them for that, but they had lost their first love. Then we move on to the, the church in Smyrna. This was a church where the bucket of the mind and the bucket of the heart were both full, full to capacity, it seems, because their spiritual health meter was right at the top. They were a, a a healthy church, and as a result, they were severely persecuted, facing death. Then we saw last time the church in Pergamum. This is the opposite of the church in Ephesus. This was a church uh, whose heart bucket was full, their, their love for the Lord, their zeal, their passion, that was full, but they had started to take their focus off truth and doctrine, and they were drifting away into false teaching and had uh, adopted the teaching of Balak and Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans. And then just to complete the sequence, uh, this is what we're going to look at next time, the, the church in Thyatira, a church seduced by false teaching. And so I'll leave that for, for Shane to unpack next week. But Today we come to consider the church in Sardis, a church which Jesus says was about to die spiritually. Now, you can see both their buckets are empty. Both their buckets are, are right up at the top and their spiritual health meter is right at the bottom. And, and if you're wondering what the tombstone white says, RWP, well, that stands for rest without peace. Because that is something which Jesus says awaits the church in Sardis if they do not Repent. And so let's turn to, to this letter which, which Jesus sent to his church, a church that he had bought with his own blood, to see just how dangerous their situation was and to learn from this church the lessons which Jesus wants us to learn here at Honey Ridge today. And so, in the first place, I want us to see that Jesus is the source of spiritual life. And we see this in the first part of verse 1. Let's read that together. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, you may have forgotten, perhaps, from our introductory study to the, the seven letters to the seven churches, a couple of things that are crucial at this point. Back in Revelation chapter 1, we saw that John explained to us this vision that he saw of Jesus. And Jesus was standing among the seven golden lampstands, and in his right hand he held seven stars. And then in verse 20 of chapter 1, Jesus himself interprets this vision for us by explaining that the seven lampstands were the seven churches, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. But we also saw back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 that John opened his book with a, a greeting of grace and peace from the triune God, from God the Father, who he said the one who, who is and who was and who is to come, from God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and then God the Holy Spirit, identified by John in chapter 1 verse 4 as the seven spirits before the throne of God. So we've got the seven spirits and the seven stars. And so as we come then this morning to, to chapter 3 verse 1, we see again that Jesus introduces himself to the church in Sardis with a title which is drawn directly out of chapter 1. Each introduction has had its basis in chapter 1, and he says the words of him 
who has or who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what is this title pointing to? Well, we considered previously that the seven stars are these angelic beings who are commissioned by God to, to be the spiritual guardians of each of the seven lampstands, each of the churches. And we saw that this connection between the angel and the church was a crucial reminder to us that primarily our identity as a local church is not a physical gathering as crucial as that is, but we are primarily, as we gather, a spiritual entity. We are a group of believers as a spiritual organism, and we have this spiritual heavenly connection. And so what plays out on the physical realm in history is only part of the picture. What we are doing here this morning, what takes place in the week as, as the church's ministries happen, what happens as you go out into the world and, and you live out your crea- uh, Christianity, this is just part of the reality. The full reality is seen in the spiritual realm. And that's what these seven stars refer to, the angelic beings overseeing each of the local churches. The seven spirits then is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit who we know Jesus poured out at Pentecost to empower and enable his church to be the lampstand, to shine brightly in this world. And so the reference then in verse one to Jesus being the one who has or who holds the the seven spirits of God, a reference to the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars, this is a clear reference that Jesus is the one who is responsible for our spiritual health and our spiritual well-being, the well-being of the church. We've, We've seen this every letter so far, that Jesus is deeply concerned with the spiritual state of his churches. And so the title which Jesus uses here to to the church at Sardis is one which points to Jesus being the, the supernatural source behind the very life and witness of the church at Sardis. Without Jesus giving his spirit to the churches, without Jesus commanding his angels to oversee the churches, the life and the witness of the lampstand would be lost and the church would die. And so it's no surprise then that this title which Jesus uses to the church in Sardis is linked to the very issue which Jesus is about to address, namely that this church was about to die. And so to the church in Sardis, to a church about to die spiritually, Jesus comes to them and he announces himself as the source, as the authority of all spiritual life as the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so before we even move on this morning uh, from the greeting, we are confronted very practically with the truth that a church which is disconnected from Jesus as its source, its source of spiritual life, its source of spiritual protection, is a church which is in a very dangerous situation. It's a church about to die. So let's just keep that in mind as we, as we go into the rest of the letter. And so in the second place, then I want us to see that Jesus exposes uh, all spiritual hypocrisy in the second half of verse one. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Now, we may be fooled uh, by the hypocrisy of a friendship. We may be fooled by the hypocrisy of a business relationship, or sadly, even the hypocrisy of someone who pretends to be a Christian. But we see here in verse 1 that Jesus is never fooled. Never. He is, as chapter 2, verse 18, reveals to the church in Thyatira, which Shane will consider with us next week, Jesus is the all-seeing, all-knowing God of holiness. Nothing escapes his eyes, which chapter 2 tells us are like flames of fire. He says to the church, I know your works, all of them, the good, the bad, and the incomplete, and nothing is hidden from his sight. And so as Jesus confronts this church in Sardis, it is a church which from the outside, from a human perspective, looked healthy. It looked alive. And yet Jesus says it's on the brink of death. Now this may be one of the most uncomfortable things that we need to come to terms with in all of these seven letters to the seven churches. Because this danger, this sin of spiritual hypocrisy, it it is so subtle, it is so deceitful, it is so dangerous, and yet it is so close to home that, to be honest, we do not like to face the reality of what Jesus is saying to us here. And yet, face it, we must. Because possibly the broadest road to hell, with the most people walking on it to a lost eternity, is the road marked with the banner, spiritual hypocrites. Outwardly alive, and yet inwardly dead. Now yes, of course, there are many who deny God. There are many who reject and openly reject the authority of God. And and they too are headed on a broad road uh, to hell. But I think the road most populated in our kind of Western uh, Christian society, if I can use that in terms of inverted commas, is this road called religion. It's a road filled with millions of people who have the reputation of being about the things of God, the appearance of being alive, and yet are spiritually, inwardly dead. So we must not forget who Jesus is addressing here. When he's speaking about spiritual hypocrisy, he is writing to a church, a church very much like ours, full of people who claim to believe in Jesus, a a church who have the reputation of being alive, a church where, where things are happening, I mean, this is a a church with lots of ministries and activities, a a church which may even have good coffee and a lack of vibe. But it's a church which Jesus says was on the brink of death. Now, concerning this reality, please realize that this letter of exposure of spiritual hypocrisy is a wonderful sign and commitment of the grace of God to us as his church. Because you will see in a few minutes that there is still time to repent. There is still time to be restored back to full life and full health. And that is what Jesus desires. So let's not come to this this warning, this this exposure of hypocrisy, and, and not see that this is an act of God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, there is a day coming. It's a a coming day that's soon. It's unexpected. Jesus says a bit later, he'll come like a a thief in the night. 
when we least expect it, and he will come and he will judge the world. And he tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, now listen to Jesus' words, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That all sounds very alive to us, doesn't it? And Jesus says, I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, you who are spiritually dead. You did outward things that seemed alive, and yet inwardly you were spiritually dead. So this day is coming, says Jesus, when all spiritual hypocrisy, it will be exposed for what it really is, lawlessness, and it will result in the same eternal condemnation as those who have openly lived in rejection of God. So rather than shying away then this morning from, from having our hearts exposed individually or perhaps as a church today as, as God's word shines its light, we should see the grace of God to us here at Honey Ridge this morning, seeking to expose any spiritual hypocrisy which may exist in our hearts before it is too late, while there is still time for us to do something about it. And so perhaps as you sit here today, no one else knows what you're thinking in your heart, but you know. And you know that Jesus knows that although you have the reputation of being alive, perhaps it's a reputation that has come from being involved in this church for many, many years, yet you know that it's all a fraud. You're a spiritual hypocrite. And the reality is that at best you are spiritually weak, and about to die. Well, the solution this morning is not to just keep on pretending, for that'll only lead to that final pronouncement of, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, the solution today is to come and ask Jesus, what must I do if this is me? If there's any truth in this individually or us as a church this morning, what must we do to rectify this desperate situation? And so in the third place, we see that Jesus commands an authentic recovery in verse 2 and 3. Now, I want you to see that Jesus does not treat this situation in the church lightly, but he steps in directly through this letter to his blood-bought bride at Sardis, and he commands a response. Nick just mentioned about the the telling his children to do something, and, and they say, yes, Dad, and, and the spirit of true Christianity is one of, yes, Father. Well, here are five commands given to us. There are five verbs in these two verses, and they are all in the form of a direct command. These are not options. These are not suggestions, good ideas. No, these are commands to respond to if we hope to experience an authentic recovery. And here they are. I'll give them to you and then we'll read the verse. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember the gospel, keep it, and repent. Let's read verse two. Wake up, says Jesus, and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So what we have here is a church in a state of spiritual complacency, spiritual laziness, to the point that they are almost in a spiritual coma. And the, the scary thing is that this spiritual state is really one of delusion, spiritual delusion, thinking that they can kind of just cruise along into heaven on the coattails of their reputation because once upon a time they were alive. And it's almost as if Jesus comes to them and shakes them vigorously and he cries out, wake up, wake up. Don't you see what has happened to you? This makes me think of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, and I think particularly of little Christian in little Pilgrim's Progress because I've, I've done that so many times over the years with our kids and, and with school groups. But little Christian is on his way to the celestial city, and he comes across three boys fast asleep on the side of the road, simple sloth and presumption. And they fast asleep, and he, he comes close, and he finds that their hands and their feet are bound in chains. And so he tries to, to wake them from their sleep, knowing that the wicked prince is prowling around like a roaring lion. And what do they do? They kind of roll out of their state of doziness and tell him to mind his own business and to leave them alone, and they fall back asleep again. And as Christian walks away, it's not long before the wicked prince sends his soldiers to bring those three boys back to his dungeon. How timeous is this reminder for us as a church as we slowly emerge from the sleepy duvet of lockdown TV Sundays. So great to be back at church again, and, and it's so good to see many of you who are here for the, the third Sunday in a row, but there are still many open seats here today. We are only at about 60% of our regular attendance that we were before COVID. So, so where are the other 40%? I don't believe that they've turned their back on their faith. And some genuinely have become homebound due to various health challenges. I understand that. But for many, I believe the problem could well be the church in Sardis. As Proverbs 6 verse 10 says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now that's true in the physical realm. How much more true is it that not of our spiritual lives? A little spiritual sleep, a little spiritual slumber, a little spiritual break from church and ministry and spiritual poverty overwhelms you like a robber. So let's consider more closely what, what happened to this church in Sardis. What was the evidence that they were about to die spiritually? Now, interestingly, we aren't told directly in the passage. We, we don't have a clear rebuke here from Jesus against a particular sin as we've had in some of the previous churches, but rather we have a rebuke here against a spiritual condition which Jesus is calling out. Now we can make a reasonable guess from the context what was behind this spiritual condition. And I propose that it was this, that they had stopped witnessing about Jesus. They had become ashamed of the name of Christ. Now, where do I get that? Well, look ahead to verse five. 
Verse 5 is the positive side of the equation. This is a promise uh, of, of reward that Jesus gives to those who are faithful. And he says to them in verse 5, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So we can't be sure, but it seems like the church in Sardis wanted to see their names written on the important lists of the day. Perhaps it was the list of the Jewish zealots who were exempt from Roman oppression in terms of religious freedom and liberty. Perhaps it was the, the list of the Roman elite, those who got various social and financial rewards for being comrades with the ruling party. Either way, in order to get your name onto those lists of the day of religious and social acceptance and prominence, you needed to keep quiet about Jesus. No one would hassle you if you kept your Christianity private, if you kept your faith to yourself. And so the inevitable result of this was that the church in Sardis stopped witnessing to the name of Jesus Christ. They kept quiet about Jesus. They stopped telling others about him and his salvation. And that is why Jesus says positively to the faithful few in Sardis, as well as to those who he calls to repent, don't worry about the lists of, of Rome or Jerusalem. I will write your name in the Lamb's book of life. Don't worry about being ostracized for witnessing to my name because I will be a witness of your name before my Father in heaven and before his angels. And so that's what leads me to believe that the sin of the church in Sardis was probably nothing more than the sin of keeping quiet about Jesus. And please notice in verse 4 that Jesus views their lack of witnessing as sin. He says that the faithful have not soiled their garments and are thus clothed in white. In other words, clothed in the garments of righteousness. What, what a scary thought. And it's, it's one actually which our kids understand better than many of us may realize. Any teenager at high school who's had exposure to teaching about social media and cyberbullying will know that if you belong to a WhatsApp group where certain people are being attacked or slandered or bullied, simply by remaining quiet on the group, you become guilty by silent consent. And so it is with Jesus. We don't need to actively participate in anything that is anti-Jesus to be guilty. We simply need to stay silent when Jesus calls us to speak up for his name. And if we don't, he says our garments are soiled. Verse 2 confirms this, where Jesus does not rebuke them for breaking a specific command or going against his word. He simply says, I know your works, and I have not found them to be complete in my sight. In other words, you've missed the mark. You've kept silent for my name. Now, this pressure in Sardis is no different to the environment that we live in in South Africa as Christians today. 
More and more, our faith in Jesus Christ is being forced into the realm of the private. Yeah, you can believe in Jesus. You can hold to your views about the LGBTQI community. You can hold to your ridiculously conservative views of sexual purity before marriage and and in marriage. You can do all of those things, but whatever you do, just keep it to yourself. Keep it private. Just this week, I was speaking to a man who told me that he has been friends with another man for 30 years and only found out recently that that man has been a Christian all those, those years. Something is wrong. So where does this leave us? It, it leaves us as closet Christians. At best, Sunday Christians, many of whom have chosen not to re-emerge from their homes on Sundays And so we can be sure that we won't emerge from our spiritual secrecy during the week. If we are embarrassed to testify about and and witness to belonging to Jesus, I'm so grateful for this morning's leading, for Nick to remind us that it's all about Christ being glorified and Christ being corporately honored in our midst. If we are embarrassed about this, for fear of what people will say, people at school, people at the club, people at the office, then we've missed the mark of our calling and our garments are soiled. Listen to how Jesus confirms this reality in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, Matthew 10, 28. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, verse 32. So everyone, and here's the connection, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, The denying of Jesus in Sardis is not that kind of rooster crowing version of denial that Peter did at the trial of Jesus. No, the denying of Jesus in Sardis simply happened through their silence, through their spiritual laziness and complacency. What a contrast that is to what Paul says in in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Come on you memory verse people. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Baptists used to be people of the book. That verse should have just rolled off your tongue. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. A Christian who is ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the name of Jesus, who never speaks out for Jesus, who does not represent Jesus in this world, is, according to Jesus, a Christian who is spiritually dead or at least about to die. And so if you recognize something of yourself in this description today, if we recognize something of ourselves as a church, what hope is there for us? What does Jesus call us to do? Well, firstly, he says in verse 2, wake up, wake up, see the reality of your condition and stop living under the false hypocrisy of what once seemed to be like a genuine conversion and yet sadly has not produced a tree with any fruit. Wake up, see the reality of your condition. Secondly then, 
strengthen what remains. There is still hope to revive the spiritual life that remains, but it requires a concerted effort to get back to Christ, to get back to the gospel of your salvation. And so that's why he calls them in the third place to remember. Remember what you received and heard. In other words, what you believed. Remember the gospel of your salvation. Go back to the cross. Go back to Jesus. Go back to the word of God and, and cry out to him for forgiveness. And Jesus calls us to repent. Repent of our sin. Repent of our lethargy, of our fear of man. Repent of being ashamed of the name of Christ. And then he says, this gospel that once saved you, keep it. Keep it. Obey it. Keep the faith. Hold on to what you know. This is exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's saying, wake up, work out your salvation. And then he goes on, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus is commanding the church in Sardis to work out an authentic spiritual recovery whereby they must wake up, strengthen what remains, remember the gospel that they first believed, repent of their sin, and obey God's call to be his witnesses to the world. But at the same time as he commands them to do all of these things, from the mouth of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, from the mouth of him who speaks life into the dead, he says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I hold the seven spirits and the seven stars. I'm commanding you to wake up but I'm the one who sustains your spiritual life. So yes, we have a responsibility to respond today, to act and to do, but the ability to do so comes from the Holy Spirit who has been given to us by Jesus. This command to wake up is not a command to the unbeliever out in the street. The unbeliever out there can't wake up because they are already spiritually dead. Jesus is speaking to believers who have the Spirit of God within him, who've neglected the Spirit, who've drifted away to the point of spiritual coma, but the life of God is still in them, and he calls them to respond and to wake up. Now, before we look at the final point which Jesus makes to the faithful in Sardis, who are not part of this spiritual lethargy, as well as to those who repent, I want you to just see that this command comes with a very stern warning in verse three. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent, if you will not wake up. In other words, this is a choice. If you choose to stay in the spiritual state of lethargy, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come, and look at those last two scary words, against you. I will come against you. Jesus will not tolerate spiritual hypocrisy in the church, which is why he calls us to repent and to return to him because this day is coming when we least expect it, when we will be confronted face to face with the one whose eyes are flames of fire, who comes to judge the world with the sword of his mouth. And no amount of fake reputation will be able to save us. Only those who have repented and remained faithful to the name of Jesus will be saved. 
and the rest he will be against. And so then in the final place, I want us to just close this morning by showing us that Jesus encourages the faithful to persevere. As we've seen in all the churches, thankfully, there are those who have remained faithful to Jesus despite persecution, despite the, the majority may have been led astray by worldliness and, and false teaching, or even in this case, spiritual lethargy, laziness. But there are still those who are faithful. And to them, Jesus gives these wonderful words of encouragement in verse 4. Yet, you still have a few names inside as people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What a wonderful encouragement to the faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ then and to us today if we remain faithful to the name of Jesus. Please look at what Jesus says about the genuine saints in Sardis in verse 4. He says, They have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What an amazing picture to describe a believer. To describe a believer as someone who walks with Jesus, clothed in white garments, whom Jesus calls worthy. What does that mean? To be called worthy by Jesus. Surely we know that, that none of us is worthy. None of us deserves salvation. None of us could ever live up to the standards of God's righteousness in order to earn salvation. So what does this verse mean? Well, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 tells us in no uncertain terms, listen carefully, what makes Jesus worthy. So let's start with what makes Jesus worthy, and then we can come back to what Jesus says here. Chapter 5, verse 1, I'm going to jump a little bit, but I'll just follow with me as far as you can. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one, here it is, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, says John, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jump down to verse 9. And all of heaven breaks out and they sing a new song. Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And right down to the end, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So now that we know 
what makes Jesus worthy. It is the fact that he is the spotless, righteous Lamb of God who suffered unto death to ransom a people for God from every tribe and nation. So how then can Jesus call us worthy? The only way we can be worthy is if we are united to him by faith. If we are united to Jesus in his death and united to Jesus in his resurrection unto eternal life. Jesus is calling the church in Sardis to see that he has conquered death. He has overcome sin and death and the punishment of hell in their place. And so he calls the church to remain faithful to him to his name alone, and in doing so, they will be declared worthy. They will be clothed in white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and they will walk walk with him. And then he says two more things in verse five. To those who remain faithful, to the, excuse me, to those who've repented, he says, do not fear the rejection of men. Do not fear that the Jews will remove your name from the synagogue register. Do not fear that the Romans will remove you from the list of the political and the social elite. Do not fear that you will be bypassed for a promotion. Do not fear that you will be unfriended on Facebook and that no one will like your Instagram posts. Instead, Jesus says, know for certain that I will never blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. This is the only list in the entire universe which you want to see your name securely written on. This is the list of the Lamb's book of life. It's a list written by the very blood of Jesus himself, for that is what it cost him to put your name in that book. So take courage, says Jesus. Remain faithful witnesses to me. No matter what the world does to you, your name will never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. And then finally, Jesus says to those who conquer, to those who in the face of persecution remain faithful witnesses to Jesus, Jesus says, I will confess, now this is a little bit mind-blowing, we read the Bible way too easily, I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Please don't skim over the impact of this verse. Ponder this with me for a moment. Think about this. Jesus Christ, the sovereign creator of all things, will not only one day call me worthy, but will confess aloud in the assembly of heaven before God the Father and all the angels my name, your name. Now part of me resists the very idea of this because I know how totally unworthy I am. I know how much I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God my entire life. I know how soiled my garments are such that I am clothed in filthy rags. How then can Jesus declare my name in the presence of, the, of God and, and the angels? But then I remember that when Jesus confesses my name before the Father and the angels, it will not be because I am worthy of that confession or because I have accomplished anything to earn that confession, but rather that confession is one which will bring all glory to Jesus. 
You see, when Jesus declares my name in heaven one day, the multitudes and the angels will not respond, Clinton, of course, what a solid chap. We've been expecting you. Absolutely not. They will respond, Clinton, no ways. That's incredible. All glory to you, Jesus, you did it again. Amen, you did it again. Don't you long to hear your name confessed by Jesus before the angels one day? Your name proclaimed in heaven one day is a proclamation of the victory of Jesus over your sin and your death in your place. I know for sure that I want to hear my name being called out on that day more than anything else that this world can ever offer me. Well then, says Jesus, if you want to hear your name confessed then, you must listen now to what he has to say. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God help us to listen with our ears, with our hearts, with our minds, examine ourselves before the Lord, to respond to this call for spiritual recovery, to take great encouragement, to persevere faithfully as his witnesses, and to look forward to that day when we will walk with Jesus in white garments. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word again, which comes to us so timelessly, so clearly and practically and relevantly to where we are at as Christians living in Johannesburg post-COVID in 2021. And yet this letter could have been written to us yesterday. And so we want to thank you not only for your grace in exposing our spiritual hypocrisy, but your even greater grace at calling us to repentance so that we might be part of that faithful group that will conquer and will have our names declared before God in heaven one day. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus and his salvation, and his gospel, and your Holy Spirit that you give to each of us who makes us alive, draws us to yourself, and causes us to walk in your ways, you will receive all the glory. So we ask, Lord, that wherever we are at today, every one of us is in need of some degree of spiritual recovery. We as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church are in need of spiritual recovery. And so we pray that we would listen to the words that the Spirit has spoken to the church today. And may you be pleased to work in us and through us all that is pleasing in your sight. And we promise to give you all the praise and all the glory for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.